How you guys doing out there? Good? Is Greg, uh, is everyone out there? Is he out there? Hey, Greg, come on up here a minute, man. Swing around through there. We interrupt this uh, sermon for a special, special program. Come on here, brother. You got surgery when, brother? Uh, Tuesday. Tuesday. Seven surgery for a little. Uh, Remove some cancerous tissue in the lungs, right? Yes. Yep. So we're going to pray for this guy for healing and for God's uh, mercy. Lord, thank you for this brother of ours. Thank you for this member of the surge. Thank you for the fact he loves us to death. Thanks for his participation in our small group. And we just pray as uh, as he gets ready to go into surgery uh, this week that you would anoint the doctors with special skills and ability beyond their beyond their even their own capabilities and their training and their experience to minister to this guy's lungs and this guy's body, that you would give them precision, accuracy, give them total knowledge for what needs to happen to take place, that you would heal this brother of ours. Uh, Look over him, pray for the nurses, the hospital itself, all the staff, the food, everything, Lord, that you would just cover it uh, with your love and your grace. Would you give us hope that you can heal and that you will heal this brother of ours uh, from this surgery? And let the cancer be gone totally. Now, in Christ's name, uh, we pray it. Thank you. All right. Thanks, man. Easy to lose sight, is it not, of uh, of all the inaugurations and marches and everything else, that there are real people with real life going on as well. let me just pray for us. God, we, uh, we ask for your uh, blessing on this place and these people that have come this morning. We pray that you would uh, give me uh, ability to speak your words. Uh, pray that you would give us hearts that are open, fertile ground to receive what you've given us, uh, that it would spring up and, and, and bring a harvest of 30, 60, 100 fold um, beyond our ability. It would be a miracle that would happen that we could say maybe even started today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you're new here, I'm Dwayne Dare, the lead pastor. I hope you weren't expecting Billy Graham. Anybody expecting Billy Graham? Sorry to disappoint you, if that's the case. As he mentioned, we are wrapping up our Goal Line series today. Uh, it's been kind of a... Well, it's been kind of convicting. If you think it's been convicting for you, if you've been here the last two weeks, uh, you should have tried to prepare the messages and deliver them. God's been wrecking havoc on me and my soul. But I think it's a, it's a good havoc, good to get God in my grill just a little bit. Um, this is the season of the year when everybody focuses most of the time on what to do about me, what to do about making me better, making me smarter, making me faster, making me get out of debt, whatever it is. Uh, But God has kind of directed us a little bit these last couple of weeks to get outside of ourselves and uh, what do I need to do for me and kind of ponder, hey, what needs to happen around me, uh, in my neighborhood, my community, my state, my my country even, maybe even in the world. Uh, And he's been asking this question of us, what is it that breaks your heart? 
I mean, we, we can't help be moved, I don't think, a little bit by the things going on around us. I don't know if you heard the story just this last week. Six children die in a row house fire up in Baltimore. Does, does that not strike you in some way? Or is it just like, eh, whatever. They're Marylanders. They don't really count. No. What, what do you think when you hear news like that, right? Unless you live in a vacuum or you just don't care, it affects you. And uh, I think followers of Jesus have to be able to see the things that God sees and care about the things that God cares about. Now, maybe you're not even really a Jesus follower, even though you maybe pretend to be. Uh, You're off the hook because God's not really leading you, right? But for genuine followers of Christ, I mean, I got to tell you, certainly there'll be things that go on in this world that get a hold of our hearts. And for you, that thing, whatever it is that's on the top of your list is more than just a news item. Maybe you've gone online to find out more about it. Maybe you read that news article twice. And when the conversation comes up and that that topic gets raised, you can't help but get a little bit agitated about it. And you maybe even wonder to yourself, why why does this bother me so much? Why am I so seized by this? And as we said last week, when you start pondering that question about what it is that breaks your heart, and once you decide to do something, there's a cost. There's a cost to being cool, but there's also a cost to being engaged in that thing or those things that break your heart. It's going to cost some time, maybe some money. It's going to distract you from what you've typically been focused on. When you step into the unknown and you kind of dig into that thing that breaks your heart, you're going to immediately feel the tension that it's going to cost you something. And as he said last week, that's a problem for us because we are not prone to give away our lives. We're not prone to give up our life because we are life preservers. But as we talked last week, Jesus kind of stopped him before we concluded that we don't have to do this and taught us that if all we do is live for ourselves and those around us, our immediate families, and we basically wasted our lives. And that's disturbing to think, right? Because you could get to the end of your life. You've maintained the perfect weight. You've gotten all your degrees. You never went into debt or maybe you got out of it. You're taking really good care of your family. But really, at the end of the day, it's really still all about you, You never did anything outside of you, outside of your family. You've socked your life away for you. And Jesus says, your life, if that's you, is a total loss in terms of the kingdom. And he kind of knew that that would totally bum us out. So he didn't stop there. He went on to encourage us. He said this basically, I'll paraphrase. But if you devote yourself to more than yourself, you will have more than yourself to show for yourself. If you devote yourself to more than yourself, you will have more than yourself to show for yourself. And I think there's something, maybe as Jesus followers, that just kind of gets us lit up a little bit by the possibility that we could get to the end of our lives and maybe have people line up to thank us, maybe say something at our funerals about the impact that we had on their lives, that we could somehow have made a difference in this world. And we kind of cast that vision for ourselves last week. What would you like people to line up for and thank you for at the end of your life? And if you have begun to kind of get the answer to that question. You've really begun to grab onto what it is that breaks your heart. Now, I think what most of uh, what we've said in this series really kind of applies to everybody. Uh, I mean, it's not exclusively a Christian thing or even a religious thing to sort of see something going on in the world around us and kind of care about that and decide to do something. But but listen, if there's Christians in this room, here's a slice of this that we have to understand. And I'm going to pick on us Christians a little bit, I think, in this series. We can, as Christians, I think, if we're not real careful, we can substitute our devotion for God for action. 
We can tend to substitute devotion for God, this vertical relationship we have with him for action that goes horizontally. We, we can be content to believe all the right things. Oh, I believe Jesus is the son of God. I believe he came to earth and took on human form, lived a perfect life and died for me. I believe he rose from the dead and gives me the possibility if I just put my faith and trust in him to have eternal life. I believe all that stuff. Oh, I believe that the Bible is God's word. And so, so I just believe all the right things. Me and God are good, right? And that, that works really well until you actually open up the Bible and sort of look at what it means to follow Christ. And when you do that, you discover, you discover something. Believing alone is not nearly enough. Now, again, I don't want you to get me wrong. This is not a message about how you get saved, all right? So salvation, we know, comes by faith, faith alone, not by works. You don't get your salvation because you worked hard for it or earned it. You believe that when God sent his son to live and die and rise again to pay for our sins, that he's the Lord of your life. He leads you into with the Holy Spirit to the beginning of the eternal life he's got for you all mapped out. Simple as that. Not adding anything to that basic gospel message. But this message in this series has been all about what happens if you suddenly decide not to just categorize yourself as a Christian, but actually followed Christ. Because when you decide to follow Christ, genuine faith does not stop with some personal, private, devotional thing with God. It's not just you and him in this relationship. Genuine believing, genuine faith, genuine, genuine following of Christ results in God empowering you to do horizontally. Now, you can say, well, Dwayne, I think you're just making this up. Okay. I challenge you to read through the book of James written by Jesus' own brother this week. It's, about, it's not about how faith and works get you saved. It's about how faith, when God invades a life, manifests itself in works that God does in and through you, as well as out in the world. And that's exactly what Jesus himself taught. You might remember this passage. We preached through it last year on Sermon on the Mount. He says this, and everyone who hears these words, notice he didn't say everyone who hears these words of mine and believes them, not impressed with believing, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the man, foolish man, who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds came and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Now, unfortunately, and maybe this is more my past speaking than yours, but sometimes I think we as Christians can be really content with making points rather than making a difference. Really great at winning arguments. I was perfect at that. Aren't we good at making points? Point our fingers at the TV when we see what's going on that we don't like. Read the Washington Post, many articles you can find that you don't like about stuff that's going on. Shake our fingers at the culture. Point our fingers at all the things that are wrong with this world. And we make point after point after point after point. And we're about to discover this. If that's all we do, make points. But we do not make a difference we're kidding ourselves that we're following Christ because that's what he did, make a difference. So today we're going to go to one of the most probably familiar passages in all the Bible. Chances are if you have been married, you may have had verses from this particular chapter read at your weddings. Uh, we're just not going to read the ones that you probably had read at your weddings. We're not going to read the lovey-dovey ones. We're going to read the ones that come right before that, the disturbing ones, the ones that bug us. We're in uh, 1 Corinthians 
chapter 13, written by the Apostle Paul. And before we get into that, let's talk about the Apostle Paul for just a second. Not that long after Jesus was crucified, raised, and then ascended into heaven. You look around, and all of a sudden, there are just pockets of Jesus followers popping up all over the Mediterranean rim. Jesus followers in all kinds of places, as far away as Rome, Philippi, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, Thessalonica, all the churches in Galatia. And the reason there were Christians popping up in all those places was that Paul decided it was not simply enough to believe the gospel that Jesus had come to save people. He had to do something with it. And he got on ships that most of us would not have ventured 200 yards offshore because it was so rickety, much less cross the Mediterranean. And he visited all these cities, and he planted all these churches, and he trained all those leaders, and he sent them letters to encourage them after he left. And one of those letters that we have as part of the New Testament is 1 Corinthians, a letter he wrote to the church at Corinth. And this part of the letter that we're going to look at, Paul says, I think, some extraordinarily disturbing things. Uh, If you're a Christian here this morning and you are not disturbed by this by the time you leave here today, I've not done my job right because I think Paul intended to disturb us. So to set the context, right before we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, here's what Paul's been doing as he goes through 1 Corinthians 12. He talked a ton in chapter 12 about giftedness. Giftedness. You know what that is? Uh, when you are born, God says he formed you in your inward parts when you were conceived. So you, know, you have gifts and abilities and skills that God implanted in you to be able to do and accomplish at birth. But then there's also the giftedness that comes when you accept Christ for the first time and the Holy Spirit comes in. He brings, God says, gifts to you. So you got these gifts. And immediately, after having talked about that, Paul begins to address people who are so impressed with their gifts and so impressed with their singular devotion to God, but don't do a darn thing in the rest of the world. Simply believe the right thing, but don't actually do anything with it. So in case you're planning to zone out early, get on Facebook, whatever, let me tell you what Paul says. He says, you need to put motion to your devotion. If you think you have devotion to God, you need to put motion to it horizontally. Not enough to simply believe. Not enough to be right theologically. You got to do something with what you know. You got to do something with those gifts that you have, either from birth or from the Holy Spirit comes in. It's got to flow outward from you otherwise, and it's kind of what he says on the other side of otherwise. It's disturbing. Let me just read it to you. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1. If I, he says, and he says I, but I don't think he's really talking about I. He's talking about the general you and me. If we, if I speak in the tongues, and the word for tongues there is nothing more than languages. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The word for love in that particular verse is agape. Not puppy love. It's not I love the Redskins, I love the Patriots, I love the Steelers. It's not that. It is a self-sacrificing, focused on others, denying yourself to do for others kind of love. He's been talking about giftedness, right? So he takes a particular gift, this ability to speak in languages that you didn't actually learn yourself. He says, if I had this incredible gift, this supernatural gift, and I could go anywhere in the world and I could speak in the language of the people that I'm talking to, all the dialects, all the various languages, I could actually speak and they would actually understand what I'm saying. 
And then he says, man, let me just take it a little step further. What if I could speak not only in the language of all the earth, but I could speak in every, any angelic language to which we would go, oh man, Paul, do angels have language? And I think what Paul would do is smack us around a little bit and say, man, don't get off topic. You're off topic. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm saying that if there was an angelic language and I could speak it, and if there were many angelic languages and I could speak all of them, as well as all the languages on earth, if I had that ability, I'm so connected to God that I can do all that. But I do not have Love, self-sacrificing, love that focuses on others, does for others. If I got this incredible giftedness, but I do not do something with it as it relates to other people, I'm a, well, I'm just noise. And we'd say, are you kidding me, Paul? <laughs> I mean, these would be incredible abilities if you could pull that off. And you're saying they're worthless? To which he'd say, and he's about to, if there's no love coming for others out of you and your devotion to God and your giftedness, then it's really all about you. And your selfishness has rendered all that giftedness totally useless because a relationship with God will lead you outside of yourself. And then, of course, just in case we didn't get that, he goes on, verse 2. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. So, okay, you're smart. I'm not just smart. You, you're, well, you're the smartest person on the face of the planet. You would never be defeated in jeopardy. You'd never miss a jeopardy question at all. And, and you know things. I mean, you just have this ability to tell what's going to happen before it happens, this prophetic ability. And you can do miraculous things. I mean, move mountains, okay, your faith in God is so tremendous you could do that kind of stuff. I mean, if you can do that kind of stuff, would you be impressive or not? <laughs> oh, yeah, you would be drawing people like, like, like whatever because people are drawn to that kind of power. If you were a pastor or a leader who could pull that off, everybody would be so confident in you and your relationship with God because they would see that God is using you in ways that he doesn't use anybody else. Paul says, if you're that person, but you do not exercise that ability, that giftedness, as it reflects to other people in love, you're worthless, and it means nothing. And again, we go, Paul, come on. Are you saying that stuff's not important? He'd say, look, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that it's just incomplete. You could be the most mystically-minded, biblically-knowledgeable person on the earth, and when you speak, everybody just latches onto it, and they would go wherever you tell them to go. Paul says, even if you're that man, that woman but it does not express itself in a love that is self-sacrificing for other people, you gain nothing. That giftedness was actually no benefit to you because it was of no benefit to others. He says, hey, Christians, if you're content to sit around and make points but never make a difference in others' lives, don't think for a moment that your Heavenly Father is somehow impressed with you and your amazing gifts. He's not because you're not actually following Jesus. Because that's what Jesus did. And he continues with this off-the-chart hyperbole. He just, again, if, just in case we don't get it. And if I give away everything that I have, I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love. I, am, I gain nothing. And we say, okay, giving away everything you have, surely, surely, God, that's, that's going to count for something. That's a good thing, right? Well, not necessarily. He's not talking about habitual tithing or giving percentage of your income or giving throughout your life. He's saying, look, I, on a moment's notice, I just decide I'm going to take everything I have. I'm going to give it away. 
I'm going to go down, downtown, get trumpets, brochures, flanfare, all that kind of stuff. Goes down and he just hands it all away. Says even that might not be a good thing if it's not motivated by love. Because again, your emphasis could be on you. You might want to make yourself feel about, better about you. You might want to make other people feel better about you. You might want to be impressing God. It's all for you. And then Paul goes completely outside the realm of reality. I deliver my body up to be burned, okay? I kind of look at it this way. Let's decide you decide, okay, I have organs. I have organs, and I'm going to just give my life away. I'm going to go to the operating table, take all my organs, my eyes, my liver, my heart, everything else, just, and hand it off. He says, you could pull that off, but if it's not actually motivated by a genuine love for others, and you're just trying to feel better about yourself or curry favor with God or make up for the bad things you've done, it's worthless. Worthless. So, even if you're the most disciplined person in the earth in raising your family and doing all the right stuff, Paul says, look, isn't that really all just about you? I mean, you feel good about your family when they do well, but you feel about good about you when your family does well. You feel good about you when your kids do well. You feel good about you when you get these great grandkids, right? Feel great about your legacy, what you're leaving behind. Paul says, no, man, don't, don't stop doing that stuff. Keep on doing that. Invest in that family. But if it stops there, if it stops there, it gains you nothing. Because in terms of the kingdom, it's worthless. You cannot measure your devotion to God in terms of what you do for you or those who just love you back. Here's Paul's point. If you make you a better you, but you have not gone further than you, and the people who basically have to love you anyway, your family, you're nothing more than an annoying version of yourself. Now, that's hard to hear. He said, we've got to put devotion into motion because devotion to God is authenticated by a love that sacrifices for others. Jesus said it this way. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If you read Jesus' account of his life on earth, those are the things he did. That's where it gets sticky. Because we know from the Sermon on the Mount that we preached through last year that others are not just those who love you back. Following Jesus will love, make you love like Jesus. And that love loves those who don't love you back. I got to tell you, that is the essence of of Christianity, it's, it's what separates us from every other philosophy and religion. Devotion to God that is authenticated by loving people who don't love us back. Not just the love for God, not just you and that internal private God thing. Now, if you're not a Christian or you were, but you, maybe you went to church when you were a kid and you bagged it at some point, let me tell you, our failure as Christians to actually live this way is probably what drove you away from church. He didn't set you on fire, but Christians failing at this probably is why you left the church. It's where many of us got it wrong. We didn't do it on purpose. That's how we were raised. That's how I was raised. Christian community where it's all about being good, not doing sin, not doing bad stuff. And it's all pretty much, how am I doing with God? You go to bed at night, you pray. Hey, God, forgive me for this, for this, for this, for this. And if you're me, you got more things than you want to talk about. Uh, how you raised your voice, how you cheated, how you lied, all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, God's saying, okay, okay, you've, you've prayed, you've, you've confessed, you're forgiven, right? But guess what? You stopped there, Dwayne. You never went beyond you. It, there's more than you. <laughs> there's more than you out there. How about the other people? When our faith goes no further than our internal private devotion to God, when it goes no further than, how am I doing, God? Let's talk about me. 
when it stops by my attempts to simply be more godly and stop doing the things I shouldn't do. Here's what I think the world hears when we're that kind of people. They hear this. We know it all. We know what you should be doing, world. You shouldn't be doing that. And they also hear this. We're better than you. We're better than you, world. We don't do that stuff. We don't go there. We don't spend time with those kind of people. We'd never put that into our bodies. Our bodies are the temple of God. We would never eat that. Oh, and I got to tell you, I actually heard this as a new pastor from somebody in our congregation, or nobody here. Said, look, we don't want all these riffraff people coming to our church. Let them go out there and get themselves straightened out. Get, take care of their mess. Get them cleaned up. Get, get their lives in order. Then bring them on in. That'd be awesome. Isn't that attractive? Do you think that's attractive to the world? Come, 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 come on, join us. Be a drag with the rest of us. I don't think that's going to be impressive. I, I got to tell you, this is huge for our church. I, I, and I think this. I think that Jesus on his own is pretty irresistible. I just read the scriptures. He's always being invited to parties. So many parties and hanging out with people all over the place that the religious leaders kind of took that as a, an offense. But if you're not a Christian, or if you know people who aren't Christians, my suspicion is that the things that they are resisting about Jesus and the church probably has nothing to do with Jesus. It's probably us. Because who's going to resist being loved unconditionally? I don't want that. Who's going to resist being forgiven totally? Who's going to resist? Hey, let's do life together. Just come as you are. We'll take baby steps. We'll just get to this life and have a great, fantastic life. I'll be with you every step of the way. Just come on. Just join in. It'll be good. Who's going to resist that? Well, you think nobody, but I think the Bible says that some people are because they've been hoodwinked into thinking that what they're pursuing that is not Jesus is going to give them happiness and joy and contentment. And a lot of them find out along the way they've been conned. So, who's going to resist Jesus? But I'm telling you, when we Christians get confused and think that our devotion to God is only measured in the vertical, how am I doing? Am I breaking my bad habits? How am, how am I doing, God? And it doesn't go outside of us. Who in the world is going to be attracted to that? That's why Paul said, I think that stuff is good that you focused on the vertical. It's good, that devotion to God stuff. It's just not enough. You can't stop there. If you do not love outside your comfort zone, you've essentially accomplished nothing and it's all worthless. So Paul's given us several examples, but let me give you one more just in case it's still not gotten through. I'm going to give you a multiple choice question and the good news is there's only two answers. So you get to pick one of them. The, answer, the question is this. For what are you most grateful to God? What are you most grateful to God for? Question number, or answer number one. God's sinless perfection. I mean, I'm a mess, but God's perfect, and that's, that's cool. I like that. Knowing that kind of helps me. It's good. It's a good thing. It's a true thing. God's sinless perfection. Here's the second choice. God's sacrificial intervention. Which one? God's sinless and perfect? Or God's intervention? Sacrificing himself on my behalf. I don't know about you, but for me, it's the second one. I think when we talk about the songs that we sing, isn't the second one the one we usually focused on? And isn't that what kind of brings tears to our eyes? Anybody broken down in tears over God being sinless and perfect? That usually doesn't happen. 
It's true, don't get me wrong. It's absolutely essential that Jesus was God and perfect. But what, what melts us into a puddle is when we get it that God expressed his love to us by sending his perfect son into our mess. Not for his benefit, but for ours. Because that is the gospel. I mean, that's the gospel. At the epicenter of the gospel is not that God believed something or that God was a better version of himself, but that he deigned to sacrifice because he loved us, to do something for us we could not do for ourselves. Likewise, our devotion to God and my devotion to God is not complete unless we are putting motion to the devotion. Jesus asks, I think, okay, now that you grasp this, you still want to be my follower? Still want to follow me? Or do you want to join the vast majority of the masses who say, eh, no thanks. But he's telling us, hey, it's going to be great if you're in. But you realize you can no longer gauge or rate or measure your devotion to God only in terms of the vertical. It's got to play out horizontally. You need to be willing to implement my words, Jesus said, as you, you've heard these, as you have done unto them, so you have done unto me. So I'm, Jesus, I'm doing for them. You can join me if you're serious about following. Now, I've got to ask a question. What if this had been the posture of the church for the last 2,000 years? What if the church actually lived that out? What if the only thing that the people in the world resisted about the church and the gospel is that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came and died for us, rose again? <laughs> what if that's the only thing there was an argument about? What if the church had not been full of, well, we're nothing and we're worthless kind of people who focus on ourselves, but not anybody else? People who are super devoted to God, but could care one whit about anybody else. What if the church loved its enemies like God loved us when we were his enemies? I tell you, nobody, nobody has resisted the church or the gospel because we were too welcoming. Nobody has resisted the church or the gospel because we were too willing to carry other people's burdens, because we were too willing to take care of widows, too willing to take care of orphans, too willing to take in foster kids, too willing to take in the pregnant girl who got thrown out of her house because she got pregnant. Nobody resists Jesus and the church because we're too forgiving, too hospitable, or too giving. Nobody. They find it easy, however, to resist us when we give the impression that we know it all and we're better than them all. And Paul says, if that's your Christianity, if that's how we're going to live, if that's our approach to following Christ, then our Christianity has gained you and me absolutely nothing. It does no one any good but you and me. And that brings us back to our question. What breaks your heart? And are you willing to put some motion into your devotion? You, you don't have to quit your job, but my guess is you're going to have to quit something. You probably won't have to leave the country, but you might have to leave your comfort zone. You won't have to give all your money away, but you probably have to give more away than you're giving. But as you said in week one, I hope this bothers you a little bit. I hope it bothers you until you do something with it. 
because you have no idea what hangs in the balance of your decision to actually embrace and move out in what breaks your heart. And the only way you can discover what hangs in the balance is to actually decide it's not going to be vertical from now on. It's going to be horizontal. It will lead you to be relentless until you find a way to actively love the people that are suffering in the thing that breaks your heart. Because Jesus taught us in unmistakable terms, even here today, it is in doing, not just believing. Because believing leads to doing that makes a difference. It's doing, not simply believing that changes the world. So what breaks your heart? If, some, if God has laid something on your heart during this series, it'd be awesome if you would just take that connection card, fill it out, send it in. It'd be great to be able to pray for you, pray for us, and maybe connect you to other people who have the same burden for what breaks their heart. Who knows where God will leave you? Who knows where God will lead us? It actually might come from what has broken our hearts. Let's pray. <clears throat> My guess is, God, there are some here that are just so delighted to be done with this stinking series. It has pushed us and challenged us and convicted us and made us irritated and angry. <sighs> but your word is your word and it's true. And you love us enough not to leave us where we are, focused on us, focused on me, focused on I, doing everything for myself. Thank you. Because some of the people that we admire most in history, admire most in life, that we've witnessed have been people who have given their lives away for something that mattered, something more than them. I pray even though we're a small group that you would infect us with a passion for following you. Not, not pretending to follow, not, not acting like we've been, not saying we follow, following. Go where you go. Lead us. Change us. As we take communion, we might need to enter a time of repentance. We might need to acknowledge that we have been super focused on us, worried about our thing, worried about our stuff, worried about our future, worried about our retirement, worried about our house, worried about... We may just be all about us. God, change our minds, change our hearts, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us when we do so. That you love us so much, your love is that deep, we cannot out mess up you and your forgiveness. Change us even this morning, in Christ's name.